right. All right, guys. Another week, another episode. I'm excited for this week. We have a great guest. She actually gives us so much content that it's going to be a part one and a part two. So we get part one this week and then next week we will finish up with part two. All right. I know that the world is crazy right now and a lot of you may be making decisions about whether or not to send your kids back to school and no judgment either way. It's a tough decision. I get it. If you are a stable moments location, I want to encourage you to think about possibly either remaining open or resuming sessions. If kids are not going to go back to school, uh, some schools just aren't opening back up and parents don't even need to make the decision. They're going to stay home. I encourage you to think about how you can possibly do sessions right now. Our sessions are only one-on-one. So if you have two people and they're both wearing masks. There are definitely ways, safe ways to achieve our sessions. And it's just so critical right now. It's imperative that these kids get the mentorship. They get out to the barn, they get out of their homes. And because kids are at home, it actually means that they might be available during weekday uh, session times, which can be easier for, for farms. So I encourage you guys, if you're looking for some permission to resume sessions when the school is not in session, then I fully give you that permission as long as we do it safely. I think it's it's as important, uh, more important now to make sure that the kids are getting out of the house and getting their needs met when they're not able to at school. Okay, the topic that I want to talk to you guys about today is how you feel about yourself. And I hope that you feel like you're a big deal. And if I were to ask you right now, are you a big deal? Do you think you're a big deal? I hope you would say, hell yeah, I'm a big deal. And that's because, not because we are full of ego and we think so highly of ourselves, but because we want to exemplify that. Uh, there's too many people that go into the serving world, like nonprofits or serving kids or fostering kids. And we do it with this like martyr attitude. We do it with like, I'm just serving and it's not about me. And we feel like, you know, letting go of ego and not being self-centered is a good thing, which it is great. But then we go to this other side where we feel like if we're serving and we're giving for some reason, we devalue ourselves and we want to prove that we care so much about others that we mean nothing. And that is not a great example to set. Uh, we want, if we want our kids and our volunteers, and our employees, and our mentors, and the people around us to believe that they are a big deal, that they can make change in this world, that they can do anything they want to do, then you absolutely 100% have to believe it about yourself. And so you can have both. You know, you're not going to attract people to your cause, people to your vision, if you are walking around saying, you know, it's really hard and someday this might work and it's not about me and I'll struggle through. Like there doesn't need to be struggle with it. That's not what a serving life is supposed to be. There's supposed to be an abundance, right? Abundance of reward and abundance for others. So we can give and, and get at the same time. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not hard work. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes, that we don't learn, that that we don't have blood, sweat, and tears included in this journey. But 
you better believe that you're a big deal. You better show up. And this is about inspiring and encouraging others to believe that in themselves. And when you believe you're a big deal, you free other people up to believe that they're a big deal. Listen, I have done it both ways. At the beginning of Stable Moments, I thought that I could hold everybody's pain on my shoulders and that I could eat out of the food bank and that I could live without my needs being met. And sure, you can do that, but it's not sustainable. What is that going to last? You know, a year, two years, three years, five years before you are completely depleted and then you realize you can't do it anymore. And then what? You, you don't show up. You fail for your staff, for the kids, for your family. You close your doors. You don't foster anymore. You don't serve kids anymore. You need to build something that's sustainable and fun and beautiful and invigorating, okay? And that starts with believing that you can build something that great. And that starts with you believing in yourself. So it's, it's not just some like make sure your cup is full so that you can pour on to others. This is a lot more about like not feeling that it, is too much ego to say that you are a big deal. Not being afraid to step into the role of somebody that can be the change that this world needs to see. And if you believe that we should all be stepping up and that we should all be doing our role in our communities and in this world, then you need to believe that you can make change. You need to believe that you're a big deal. You need to believe that, you know, God created you to do those things and that you're going to honor him by saying that you're a big deal. You know, I encourage you to write down why you're a big deal. What's your vision? What's your personal vision for your life? What's your business vision? What's your family vision? What's your financial vision? Get your vision written down and at the top of it, write, I'm a big deal. You know, inspire yourself, get some direction where you're going and make that, you know, kind of be your pledge to how you're going to show up and be a big deal so that you can encourage others to do the same. Okay. So on today's podcast, we have Karen Doyle Buckwalter. She has recently co-authored a book called Raising the Challenging Child. It is an amazing practical application book that all of us can learn from. She also is a therapist and she works for the Chaddock Institute, which they do this amazing program that's like Um, it's a post-adoption intensive family-based therapy where if a family is an adoptive family that is uh, possibly going to have their family disrupted, like the child isn't working out in their home, this is a service that can come to you regardless of where you are in the United States. They kind of fly in and do this very intensive family-based therapy to promote permanence within your home. So It's incredible. She has a lot of practical wisdom and she is sharing it with us. Like I said, it's a two-part episode. So make sure to tune in this week and next week to hear all the amazing wisdom she has for us. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. 
So if you could just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with serving children and families. So hey there, Rebecca, good to be with you today. Um, so I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter and um, I've been in the field over 30 years now. I started out working with pregnant and parenting teenagers. That was one of my first jobs that I ever had. And that really served me well as my career went on. I had no idea how well it would serve me. Um, but for the last 25 years, um, I've been at Shadok, which is a multi-service uh, facility based in Quincy, Illinois. We have a private special education school and we have a um, residential treatment program and we have an intensive in-home program where we fly all over the country and work with families whose adoptions are at risk of disrupting. Wow. Sometimes uh, I describe that program as nanny 911 with clinical services woven in yeah. <laughs> for at-risk adoptions. Um, anyway, so my background is as a clinician, as a psychotherapist, um, I'm also a TheraPlay trainer and supervisor, um, and really the whole way that I work is from an attachment-based orientation, and much of my work has been related to uh, working with children in foster adoption situations and their families. So yeah, it's just a little bit about me. That's awesome. I, I come from a post-adoption uh, background as a post-adoption case manager. Um, and I'm interested just because you said that uh, you will do this kind of work where you can even go across the country into homes that their permanence is at risk or whatever. So can you tell me a little bit about that or how that's funded or how parents access that resource? Yeah, so um, most of it, uh, unfortunately, is private pay um, because we don't seem to have a box that fits insurance for what we do, um, but uh, we are always willing to, to help families try to figure out, you know, if there's a way we can at least pay for parts of it. Um, through that. So what it is, is um, we go with a therapist and a parent coach um, and we spend um, three to four days with the family. So we stay in a hotel. We start with the family at nine in the morning and we're usually there till eight or nine at night, um, the therapist and the parent coach. So when I say intensive, I really do mean intensive. We're talking, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Wow. There's three phases to the program. There's the pre in-home intensive phase. So that that starts before we actually go to the home where we're talking with the family, just really hearing their story, hearing what they've tried, hearing what they what has worked, what hasn't worked, um, and just anything that you can get done ahead of time. We want to get done in that time period before we go to the home so that we can really hit the ground running with therapeutic interventions, helping with how to manage behavior, and all those kinds of things while we're in that home, because that time we're there in person is really precious. Mm -hmm. And then phase three is the follow-up and sustainability phase where the family begins to implement everything that we taught them to do. The reason that we have a therapist and a parent coach is my experience at Chaddock is that those are two very different skill sets. Um, knowing how to manage like a totally out of control kid that's, you know, hitting you, kicking you, biting you, refusing to go to bed. That's not what therapists are usually dealing with in their office. You know, we see kids for about an hour. So um, I, 
at a time, you know, and we may see some of that. Um, but I realized at Chadak, it was the staff members that worked in our residential program with these kids hour after hour, day after day, managing eight, nine, 10, 11 of them at, at a time with a, a team of people, that um, they were the people that could operationalize what I call it, the clinical work. So, so what does what I'm doing in therapy with my therapist mean right now in this moment with my child? Mm -hmm. That's what they can do. Um, and it's not that therapists can't do that at all, but that's not like what we do every day. We don't manage behaviors every day like parents do these children so you kind of really need both you need the the therapist and what they can do but you also need that person that can really translate that into the minute-to-minute -minute care of the child mm. um, and the other thing that I would add that we found um, about the program is huh, how can I say this we can all read books and we can go to conferences and we can read um, watch videos and we can think that we're doing therapeutic parenting or we're doing what they say in my my book raising the challenging child or we can think oh i went to the empowered to connect conference and i know tbri and that's what i'm doing um, but what i found was if you actually see that in action with parents and children what they think they're doing is often not what they're actually doing. I, I totally get that. And that's true of all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we are driven by unconscious things that we really don't realize. So we use a lot of video in this program because then when we use video, we can actually see what's happening mm -hmm. and I can kind of slow it down and show it to a parent and say, let's think about, you know, what was going on for your child here? What was coming up for you here in that moment? And we can really slow down that interaction. Um, and so we use video and we use actual in-home intervention. We just found that families telling us in therapy what was happening and what they were doing, we were missing like a lot of the story and it wasn't intentional. It right. wasn't like families were trying to hide something. Of course. Like when they're just in this day in and day out, um, they're no longer objective. Well, I shouldn't say that. We're never objective about our relationships anyway. Sure. You know, that's why we always have to say there's two sides to, to everything. Um, so anyway, the program's become a really beautiful way to work. And um, most of the families that call us, um, the, they're looking at another placement um, and we're able to prevent out of home placement in 75% to 85% of the cases. So yeah. that, that is so awesome. I, I bet you there's parents listening going, I need that service. And yeah. you know, some states do have um, special services funding that you yes. can access. And you know, these are the opportunities that churches want to help like serve foster yes. families and sometimes they just don't know what the needs are so going to your community going to your church going to other organizations and saying like can we sort of fund for something like this is what we need to keep this family together um in in getting kind of creative about funding it is unfortunate yeah. for adoptive because families. the problem is that and, and the reason i developed the program was a lot of families that would call us for residential treatment services I would, as I would start to talk with them more, I would realize 
there were so many things that could be tried that were not tried mm. because it wasn't available in the person's community or there wasn't somebody trained that way or there wasn't somebody who knew how to do this. Um, and so the child was just beginning to cycle in and out of like the local psychiatric unit, mm -hmm. you know, or, or calling the police periodically or, you know, these, these, when we're at the end of the rope, these things that we do. And so the family's thinking what it must mean residential treatment. I mean, what else is there? Right. You know, we're, we're, um, but so this is meant to, that, that's a big gap going from weekly therapy which is often what's being done, possibly a partial hospitalization program that's very generic to residential treatment. Sure. I mean, that's a big leap. And so I was really wanting to find a way to, to bridge that gap in service and pre prevent out-of-home placement. We know that that is another, although it is absolutely at times, I understand why it becomes necessary. It is another trauma. It is another trauma. Absolutely. And everybody will feel better if they're given the tools to be able yes. to be successful in, in their home. Yeah. I totally get what you mean too, about, uh, having a different in difference in perspective or having parents say something's happening one way and maybe it's not exactly how it's happening. And I feel like I did this as a case manager. I mean, my, I would work with the therapist and I'd be the case manager and I would be the in-home implementation arm. But even I would say, I am, I'm doing this exactly how, and then she, I would explain to her what happened and she's like, well, you're not really being that empathetic to the parents, are you? Or, you know, like she would be able to, because as humans, we want to like, yep, we've learned it. We've checked off the box and then we can go, I know me personally, like I'm so black and white that like I go all in one way and I might go too far one way. So I actually have some questions pertaining to that, that are in your book because, um, because of advice that I've given parents based on uh, some of the things that I've seen in my in my time as a case manager, and I'm realizing after reading your book that you know it maybe it isn't that black and white. Um, so, you know, at Stable Moments, we really value healthy relationships, and all trauma work is really relationship based. Now, you talk about in your book this relationship bank. Can you yes. speak to that concept? Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea of the relationship bank is that there, in every relationship, whether it's with our child or our boss or our someone we're in a romantic relationship with, for, for this example, we're going to talk about a child, we're giving deposits or withdrawals into that relationship. So deposits into a relationship are, are positive things, things that make somebody feel good, being able to say yes to something a child wants, um, being able to compliment or praise a child for something, um, being able to spend time playing that board game that the child loves. So all of those are deposits into what we call in the book, the relationship account. And the reason this concept becomes really important is because 
as caregivers, as parents, we have to make withdrawals. Withdrawals from the relationship bank account are things like you have to do this and you have to do it now. Um, it's time for your chore. It's time for your homework. Um, I need you to help do this. We need to leave now, even though you don't really want to leave now. Um, so all of those things are withdrawals. And what we find with a lot of the kids that we work with, um, because the parent-child relationship is really, really stressed, um, there are not a lot of deposits into the parent-child relationship account from the child perspective now I'm saying. Um, and, but then there start to be a lot of withdrawals. Mm. And you know, any person, if that relationship bank account gets really out of balance, I mean, whether you have trauma in your history or not, our point is that, you know, anytime it's, it feels like constantly being told no, constantly being criticized, um, never having a choice about anything. Um, these are all things that are withdrawals from that account. And um, when that account is low and you try to make a withdrawal, that often will lead to problems in the child's behavior. So, you know, we really work a lot with parents about having to make deposits into that account so that you don't overdraw it um, when you when you do. I mean, parents will say, I don't have time to, you know, do this or do that or give choices to, or whatever, um, which, of course, we don't always have time to do that. And so there are withdrawals. There need to be withdrawals. That's just life. But where we run into trouble is where the withdrawals are consistently more than the deposits. Same as you would run into trouble with your bank account. There's always withdrawals and not deposits. I love that analogy. I, I absolutely love that analogy. And a lot of what you talk about in your book, it, it's literally, it's the same amount of words. It's just diff said differently. Um, mm -hmm. That can, can make it a choice rather than a, a right. demand or... So, so I love that your book actually has like the exact things you can say. So one of the um, things that I have been more black and white on, but really uh, ends up being a withdrawal is negotiations. Because in my, in my work, I would see like, okay, it's time to shut off the Xbox. And then the kid would be like 10 more minutes. And then they say, okay, 10 minutes. And then eight minutes goes by and they go, Hey, you've got two more minutes on the Xbox. And then the kid's like, I'm just about at the end of this level and I'm about to beat this thing. Can I have, I just need seven more minutes. Okay. But if it go now it's 40 minutes later and we're still talking about the Xbox and I'm like, you set a limit. You said the 10 minutes, which I feel like was the negotiation in the beginning. And now we need to follow through. So I'm like, stop negotiating. Right. But as I read your book, I see that there really are uh, ways to do healthy negotiation that can add to the, the relationship being. So can you talk about healthy negotiation and when it's appropriate to do it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing, you know, that, um, you know, like I said earlier, is that we can't negotiate about everything, you know, and that I realize that. But when I, I'll tell you, like when I first started to work with kids um, that had a lot of attachment difficulties, a lot of trauma problems, and this would have been like in mid nineties, early nineties, um, even a lot of the stuff that was out there was, oh, I had to think, I'm getting, I'm getting old, Rebecca. <laughs> it, was a, it was a long time ago, okay? Um, <laughs> um, 
it was, uh, you know, that you don't give choices, that these kids are control freaks. And so you need to not give them choices. And the more they get away with, the worse they get. And you just have to be like, it's basically my way or the highway. And don't give them any choices or any wiggle room on anything. They have to have like respect and do it. There was a slogan, fast and snappy, the first time you tell them. And so, you know, that's sort of what I was initially exposed to. And as time went on and I started to learn more about the brain and I started to, I, I was exposed to some other kinds of ideas. Um, you know, Karen Purvis, who talked about choices and shared power. And, you know, I, I began to really think, you know, I think what it comes down to, Rebecca, is, and I don't know why we don't ask ourselves this. It's like we put these kids in a different category. How would you like that? How would you, Rebecca, like never getting a choice about anything, never getting any room to negotiate anything? Like, how would that relationship feel for you? Yeah. Or even if, even if my husband told me to, okay, you're shutting the TV off now. Uh, yeah, you're shutting it off now. I don't, I don't care if you want to see that. So, I mean, I think that there is in a way, a little bit of it goes back to the relationship bank account that you you proactively look for opportunities to give choices, to negotiate on things that don't matter as much. You know, we give examples in the book, like, do you want a blue cup or a red cup? Um, you know, hey, uh, we have to stop for fast food tonight because, you know, whatever, we didn't get to dinner. Um, do you want, you want Arby's or do you want McDonald's? I mean, you know, um, just there's so many opportunities to give choices about things that really don't matter, you know, when, when we get right down to it. And so, um, we don't negotiate about everything. Um, and I don't recommend renegotiating and renegotiating and renegotiating. I don't recommend, you know, if we say the TV is going to be off in five minutes, the TV is going to be off in five minutes. You know, I don't recommend, you know, keep extending it, keep going, keep going, whatever. I do recommend, you know, giving a warning, letting the child know. Mm -hmm. And I also recommend if they don't like it after the five minutes, not saying I told you five minutes and it's going to be five minutes and I don't care. Click. You can turn it off and say, it's hard. I know you wanted to see the rest of it. So, so you can set limits with empathy instead of rigidity and anger. And that's one of the things that makes a huge difference is how we go about it. Do, um, do we go about it as though, you know, I'm on a power trip here and you're going to do what I say? Um, or do we go about it, you know, we need to do this, but I also know this is kind of hard for you. I get that you're going to get a different reaction based on your demeanor about it. Yeah. I, I, I really love that with the uh, stable moments model. It's a mentorship program where community mentors uh, matched up with a foster adopted youth and uh, they do equine assisted learning. So we got a lot going on, but part of the program is that we make a three part plan. And a lot of this, the kid actually really makes the plan. And a lot of this is so that we can redirect back to their own choices. So if you had a kid that was like, you know, you said, do you want a red cup or a blue cup? And they want a blue cup. And then you pour the whole cup of milk and then you bring it over and they're like, mm, red, I want a red cup. And you're like, well, would it be appropriate for you to say like, oh, well, actually you chose red this time. So, the, or you chose blue. I forget which one I said, but next time maybe you can try the other cup. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that would be absolutely appropriate. I wouldn't say, okay, now you have to dump it and put it in the red cup. Um, I'm going to, you know, you said blue, that's what we'll have this time, maybe next time. I think that's a really, really great example of how you could go about doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think that what I've seen is the parents that I worked with that had adopted wanted so badly to just give this child whatever their their needs were whatever their therapeutic needs were so if we were saying you know be more empathetic be playful be attuned be this i would start to see it to the point where so negotiations might go on forever because they don't want to be re-traumatizing they let the child sleep in their bed for um ever and never set any boundaries for their husband and them to even get a night alone right. or whatever because because they're nervous about um, re-traumatizing a child. Right, so here's where, um, this is a very important and misunderstood topic. And I think we talk about this a lot in my book about the balance between structure and nurture. So, you know, I already said, when I sort of started doing some of this work, there was a lot of very rigid recommendations um, about how to parent these kids. Well, you know, then we start hearing more about trauma and we start hearing more about empathy and we start hearing more about what's really going on in the brains of, of children who've experienced things like this, how they're living in a fear state, um, all of these kinds of things. And then, um, we move over, like you said, to a more em empathetic, empathic stance. Um, and, we have to have both. We have to have structure and nurture and in, in balance. Um, kids need, and, and I, I, let me also say before I get to that, we kind of come to the table one way or the other in general is my experience. You kind of come to the table as a very structured kind of drill sergeant. Like I like rules. I like structure that makes me comfortable. Or you come to the table more comfortable with, Hey, you know, I'm a pretty laid back person. I'm all about, um, nurture. I'm all about, um, you know, we'll just go with the flow. Let's not make a big deal about it. You know, da, 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 da. So here's the, here's the dilemma is kids need both and they, to feel safe, they need both. So if you're this wishy-washy parent, who's just kind of being real empathic and just like, oh, I hope you're okay. Da, 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 they're not getting the feeling of strength and protection. And, you know, I love the, the language that circle of security uses, even though that's more about younger children a bigger, stronger, wiser presence. Mm. So they need that too. And, you know, a lot of times when we go into homes, um, parents have erred on one side or the other mm -hmm. pretty extreme mm -hmm. because when I said, you know, we kind of come to the table one way or the other, um, under, under stress, you'll do more of what you're naturally wired to do mm -hmm. and less what you're reading in all the books and seeing on the video. <laughs> Like under stress, it'll really drill down to that core thing of what is your knee-jerk reaction. So the parents that we were, are working with are under tremendous stress. So they are going either like overly structured and rigid or there's like no, like I, or there's no rules and it's all about empathy. And, and we read, you know, we have to consider their, 
their terrible history, which you do, um, but we have to have structure. And when, one of the things that I um, have found in our in-home intensives is the level of violence that is going on in homes that families are not telling us about mm. with kids that are really out of control, that are physically attacking parents because parents aren't having limits and structure. They're all, they're, they're very confused about this and they're thinking it's not having enough empathy. And what I have to tell parents is if there's not physical safety, we can't work on psychological safety. And if it, we have to have both. So you're not going to be able to work on your trauma and your feelings of safety as a child if you can harm the people who to care for and protect you. You're not going to be able to work on that because you're, you're not going to feel safe if you can harm those that are there to care for you and protect you. Well, and, I mean, that's scary. and those those physical outbursts may be just like seeking when it when are you going to you know, put your foot down and when are you going to have this boundary yes. to keep us all safe? And, and you tell this uh, little story in your book about a child that goes into a therapist's office and whacks the therapist in the head and the therapist just kind of immediately, you know, gets on that eye level and holds the shoulders and says, we're not going to do that here. We don't do that here. And right. it was like all the anxiety was taken out of the room and everybody felt like, okay, this is a safe place. And like, yes, how amazing was it probably for those parents to get that model for them? Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, I think it's that, um, you know, I, I, I work with parents who are terrified of four, five, six, seven-year-olds. And um, we really have to give them a level of understanding, education, support, and skills. Because if you're if your caregiver is afraid of you, you can't feel safe. And if you can't feel safe, your behavior is going to keep escalating. And so it becomes this vicious cycle where the parents feel very overwhelmed and unsafe. The kids feel very overwhelmed and unsafe. And everyone's just triggering each other in this very vicious cycle. Um, and so that, that really becomes problematic. Right, guys that wraps up the part one of this conversation but tune in next week for part two we talk more about when should we be playful when do we need to you know redirect our children when do we need to be structured we even talk about false allegations and how you can deal when a child's making false allegations about you we know that this can be a really difficult thing for foster and adoptive parents Make sure you check out her book. It's on Amazon. It's called Raising the Challenging Child. And you can even look her up and like her page on Facebook. That is Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Thank you to everyone who has left us a review on Apple Podcast. I'm going to go ahead, like I said, and read one. This one is from Donna Waddell. It is titled Rebecca Knows Her Stuff. I'm a 73-year-old adult adoptee. I volunteered at Stable Moments for two years when Rebecca was starting up in Georgia. Having experienced the trauma from separation from my biological family myself, I was very sensitive to Rebecca's commitment to these fostered and adopted children. She was awesome. The program was well-developed and, more importantly, effective. And it was fun. At first, it sounds like just grooming and walking horses might be boring. 
But the creativity Rebecca introduced into the program kept everything moving and relationships building. Relationships between the kids and the horses as well as the kids and their mentors. Personally, I found my involvement was rewarding and healing. The kiddos will have to speak for themselves, but I suspect they would agree. Thank you so much, Donna. It means the world. I love that I remain connected to the mentors that were in my original program and that they continue to follow Stable Moments Progress. If you guys can leave a review, I'll be reading, I'll be reading another one next time. All right, guys, tune in for part two with Karen. I will see you next week. <laughs>